0: Hi. Welcome to the workshop, Gays and Lesbians' Shipmates All. My name is Pam, and I'm a Overeater and Bulimic, and your moderator for this session. Hi. Hi, Pam. Hi, Before we begin, please turn off your cell phones and pagers. Okay. This workshop is being taped. All opinions expressed by those who share are their own, and not necessarily of those of OA as a whole. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, ask-it-basket questions, and sharing on the topic. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from As Bill Sees It, page 24. A like when the chips are down. In the beginning, it was four whole years before A.A. brought permanent sobriety to even one alcoholic woman. Like the high bottoms, the women said they were different. A.A. couldn't be for them. But as the communication was perfected, mostly by the women themselves, the the picture changed. This process of identification and transmission has gone on and on. The skid rower said he was different. Even more loudly, the socialite or a Park Avenue stumble-bum did the same. So did the artists and the professional people, the rich, the poor, the religious, the agnostic, the Indians and the Eskimos, the veterans and the prisoners. But nowadays, all of these and legions more soberly talk about how very much alike all of us alcoholics are when we admit that the chips are finally down. Our first speaker is Karen from Culver City, who will speak for 25 minutes. Do I have someone who can time?
1: Well, if somebody can time, I could talk to for an hour.
0: Yes. Yeah, they have.
2: The timer has this. Okay.
1: Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Karen. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm just going to move the microphone a little bit, so prepare for the squeaking. No squeaking. How nice. Okay, so, um, I guess this one was mine. Anybody else seeing double besides me? For those of you on the tape, I'm holding up two copies of Azubill. Season it, one, of you can't. All right. Um, you know, when, um, well, first let me say that, I am very grateful to be here. I consider it uh, the highlight of my year when I am able to come to a Region 2 convention. I just love them. I love them to pieces. I love coming to the LA Group birthday party, and I love the Region 2 convention. And I'm also um, very um, pleased to be asked to give service in this way. And um, before I speak, whenever I speak, I, I go off and I say a few deep, take a few deep breaths, and I say the serenity prayer, and I ask God to remove me and say what needs to be said to be of service to him and the people in this room. So I'm hoping that happens. Just by way of numbers and qualifications, um, I, I've sent around some pictures of uh, myself. I find that when I first came into program, and even today, I like looking at people's pictures because it just gives me a sense of where they came from. And I and, and there's, there's no, no words that I can say that can describe to you The the coldness in my eyes, the the vacant expression in my my face that you'll see in some of those pictures because um, I was just so, um, you know, not present, not present. Um, Also, I'll tell you just for the fun of it, in the very first picture I'm a baby. I'm probably, I don't know, two or three or one, I'm not even sure. I had the picture for years before I realized in my left hand, I think it is, I'm holding a Twinkie. Which I didn't notice that for the longest time. Even as a compulsive overeater, even in a way I didn't notice that, but I get a kick out of it. So I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 1986 in January. And I would love to be able to tell you, my pride and ego want to be able to tell you that I've been abstaining for 19 years. I have not. I've been abstaining for about 12 and a half years. We experienced a tragedy in my family. I went into a four and a half year relapse, put on somewhere between 40 and 50 pounds. Uh, I'm now abstaining three and a half years or or thereabouts. Um, I I tell you though that I never stopped coming to meetings. Never. I kept coming back, and I was talking with somebody before just before this session, and she said, you know, it took her nine years to figure out that the secret to OA is to keep coming back. That's the secret. Everybody comes. What's the secret? Just keep coming back. So. Um, there are a couple of different ways I can go with what I'm going to say, and I'll see where God takes me. When I first read page 24 in As Bill Sees It, which is what, um, what Pam. Pam read earlier. Thank you. <laughs> I have a bad memory. Uh, when I first read it, I thought, I don't get it. And then I read it again, and then I talked to somebody about it, and then I read it again, and finally I got it. See, for me, what this means is that at, one of the reasons that OA works so well for me is identification. I did not know that there were other people who'd spent their lives lying, cheating and stealing about food, obsessing about food. Um, I I would steal I would I would steal money and buy I I worked after school in the ice cream truck when I was a little kid helping out the ice cream man, and I grab handfuls of quarters out of his little jar, and at the end of the, the day when he was getting ready to, to leave, I'd have all these quarters and I'd buy all of his stuff. Sometimes I'd, I'd share it, and sometimes I'm e- I would eat it all. Um, I am one who would eat stuff off of whatever it happened to be and try to make it look just the same so nobody knew that I had taken all the ice cream or all the cookies or whatever. Um, I was the one who I would go. In seventh grade or whatever it was in junior high, I would go at the nutrition break and go get a couple of those little crumb cakes, and then about 10 minutes later, go back and get some more. And go, but this time, go around the back of the building because I didn't want anybody to see me eating. The other two adding up to the four that would keep me going throughout the day. I didn't know there were other people who would walk up and down the candy aisle at 7-Eleven and sometimes buy stuff and sometimes steal stuff and sometimes do both and go home into the bedroom. Sorry, did I close the door? Um, the door was on that side of the room. I'd lay down on my bed reading and the candy was here and I'd be eating as I was reading in my bedroom. I didn't know people did that. I didn't know people had thoughts like, well, at the time Domino's pizza only had smalls and larges. I don't know if they have mediums now, but they didn't then. And I always thought, well, it's only another dollar for a large, so how economically feasible and important and and clever of me to get the large because it would save me, you know, it was just a, a dollar more for this much pizza. And it's funny. I, I used to eat so much pizza. That's the, in my in my uh, relapse. The one thing I have not picked up since I start since I gave up pizza in January of 1989. I've never touched pizza again. One of the things that I found happened is where I used to live, there was a Domino's Pizza nearby, and I found out not too long after I gave up pizza that store went out of business. And um, I, it probably has nothing to do with me, but I like telling the story anyway. Uh, but anyway, so what is this? What is this reading about? For me, what... – all right, let me not talk about the easy stuff. Let me talk about the hard stuff. The hard stuff is when I got the letter in the mail saying that they wanted me to speak on this topic, I wasn't sure I wanted to do so. Not this topic, but in this session. I wasn't sure that I wanted to speak in a, in a, at a gay and lesbian special focus meeting, and I didn't know why. I'm still not sure why. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I think, and I guess I, I've forgotten this, but somebody reminded me a little bit earlier that um, back in 2001, I was asked to speak at a gay and lesbian special focus workshop, and I didn't. I, I don't know why. I don't know what I was afraid of. And the thing that's so weird for me is when I'm out with my partner, or when I'm out anywhere, and I see a lesbian couple or a gay couple, I want to go up to them and say, hi, I am too. I just, there's that connection. And there's something in my heart that touches people who are gay or, le- or, gay or lesbian like me, lesbian, like me or gay, that it's what this reading is about to me and why this session is here to me is O.A. works for me because I identify. When people are up here talking and they're talking about what they do with food or what they did with food or are still doing with food or trying not to do with food and their relationships, their family, their work and everything, all of the struggles we have and the committees in our head and all of the difficulties and all of the struggles and all of the hell that we go through, When I hear people talk about that, I identify, and I go, because I find a place that I belong. Before I came into OA, before 1986, I didn't belong anywhere. I have no friends that I knew. The only people that I know now that I knew prior to 1986 are the people that I am related to by blood. I didn't know how to have a friend. I didn't know how to keep a friend. I didn't have a clique. I didn't have a circle of friends. I played played sports in school. I played softball. Didn't know of us. Um, I didn't think it had anything to do with being a lesbian. I just played softball. I was an athlete. I didn't come out until I was 29 years old. I had no idea. I didn't even know myself that that I'm a lesbian. I didn't know. And it was scary when I found out at first. But then when I came to realize this isn't so bad, my friends say I came out like I was shot out of a cannon. Um, And I had all kinds of fun, and I still am. But I, um, I didn't fit in anywhere. I didn't belong. I always wanted to be one of those people who walked into the room and everybody said, Karen, I'm so happy to see you. I never got that my whole life. Mind you, at the same time, I always wanted to be one among my fellows. I wanted to be part of a group. I wanted to, I wanted to be head and shoulders above everybody else, and I wanted to be part of a group. And I realized in program I learned some years ago that that was part of my fundamental problem. I wanted to be part of, and I wanted to be the star. And they're mutually exclusive. You can't be both. And by wanting to be the star and better than everybody else, I was setting myself apart from everybody. I learned in these rooms that I grew up with a near total and complete lack of self-esteem. I didn't, I didn't really know that. I've come to learn I had a brother who died before I was born, and I grew up believing that Barry was supposed to live and I was supposed to die. So from the get-go, I didn't think I was entitled to this little you know, rectangle of space that I take up. And when I compared myself with you, because that's all I ever knew how to do, I was either way better than you or way worse than you. I never knew how to be just like you. Gay, lesbian, straight, fat, thin, black, white, whatever. It didn't matter. I just wasn't. I just wasn't. I just wasn't. So for, for me back to this reading again, this, you know, when I when I finally looked at it a little bit more closely, I thought, okay, so, so the alcoholic women, well... AA is not for them because, well, it's just for the, you know, the, the, you know, suburban white, whatever, white men of that time in the 30s and 40s, 50s, and so on. And and so this reading talks about, so the women, they said it didn't work for them, but as time went on, and here's a line that really jumped out of me. But as the communication was perfected, mostly by the women themselves, the picture changed. And when I read that just a little while ago, again, because I've read this several times, I thought, wait a minute. It's not up to everybody else to reach out to me as a lesbian, as a compulsive over well, as a compulsive overeater, I think it is. But for those of us who struggle with separateness because we are gay or lesbian, it's not just their responsibility to reach across the divide, it's our responsibility to reach across the divide as well and meet in the middle. And that's how OA works for me anyway. Now, I have to confess, I've been very fortunate. To my knowledge i haven't experienced direct homophobia i haven't been belittled or attacked or chastised or criticized or anything because i'm a lesbian i didn't i was afraid that i might lose friends in coming out to people hasn't happened i work i became an attorney two years ago and i work in a law firm where the partner that had a hand in hiring me is gay we have gay partners we have gay associates we have gay special counsel um, we have, you know, one, you know, several of the of the of the women who are raising, you know, the, the women who are raising children, bring their kids to work. I mean, it's just an incredible place. So I've been very fortunate. And the people that I hear talk about, like we heard this speaker the other night talk about, you know, I had this shameful secret that I was gay, and that's why I ate. I didn't have that. I ate for a host of other reasons. So part of me feels a little imposter-ish that I'm up here. Um, because that wasn't a struggle or a problem for me. My own fear, at first, as I say, when I came out, because I thought I might lose friends. Uh, that that was part of my experience. So I can't relate or identify from personal experience with those of you who have struggled and been shunned and been um, attacked and so on. I, I feel it. I take it personally when one of my brethren or sistering, is that a word? Uh, brothers or sisters are, um, vilified in any way, for any reason. Uh, but it just hasn't been part of my own story. So, I want to talk about the identification part. And also, the other thing I'll say, too, is since this is a gay and lesbian focused meeting, or somebody was saying to me yesterday that there were some people who thought that there shouldn't be a gay and lesbian focused meeting because it's not, has nothing to do with compulsive overeating. And it wasn't until, thank you, and it wasn't until this morning that I realized, well, shoot, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people who struggle with, we struggle with our sexuality, as some, as a speaker said the other night, uh, whatever sexual orientation we possess, we struggle with our sexuality, and that's the basis for a lot of us for this disease. And again, for me, being in a room full of people who not only struggle with food like I do, But we also have the issues of, you know, I'm I'm engaged to, some of you will argue, but I'm engaged to the most wonderful woman in the world. Some of you may think you are. I, you know, I am very lucky that God saw fit to bring this gorgeous, delightful, kind-hearted, gentle, loving spirit into my life, (laughs) who is not a compulsive overeater. It's really strange. I I am now living up close and personal with somebody who has a normal relationship with food, and I'll tell you what, it is bizarre. It is bizarre. She can eat a little bit of something, and that's enough. Uh, Enough, not in my vocabulary. Uh, Let me jump ahead a little bit to um, my strongest message, the one that if there's anything that you can walk out of here with, it's the message of hope the message of knowing that the answers are in this room. They don't always happen fast. Sometimes we get the answer, then we lose it. It slips out of our hands. Like I said, I came in in 1986. I was abstaining. I was giving service. I was doing great. I probably thought I was doing better than I actually was. Um, Then, some of you know, my youngest brother was murdered in 1998. And after not being hungry at all for a little while, I slipped into a violent, brutal, awful relapse. And I could not stop eating for four and a half years. It was very difficult. But I never stopped coming to meetings. Mind you, I didn't have anywhere else to go. I didn't want to go anywhere else because this is where I found love and compassion. Even for people who didn't really know what to say, I find that that sometimes people don't know what to say because what do you say? but the sometimes i just didn't listen to the words because some words were kind of weird but the sentiments the emotions the look on the faces the warmth in the hugs that's what i get here that's why i keep coming here so in december of 2001 i guess it is i started up again great thanks god um And it all, it hasn't all been peaches and cream since then. We went through a protracted, we only just finished all everything around the murder trial in June. So we're talking a long, long, long time. What's going on today? And how am I today? I am abstaining, not perfectly. It's not always gorgeous. In the last couple of days, last night and this morning, I picked up some really great stuff just from a couple of sessions. So I'm very optimistic for what's going to happen when I leave here. I, I just got diagnosed last week with, I've got some problems in my neck, and if all of the conservative treatments don't work, I'm going to have to have surgery on my neck, fusions and stuff like that. I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to do any of that. Last week, my um, father was diagnosed with, uh, a, uh, uh, I was going to give you the full name, I'll just give you abbreviation ALS, that's Lou Gehrig's disease. What that means is my father's going to deteriorate and die. It is overwhelmingly sad, overwhelmingly sad. My father's such a nice guy overwhelmingly sad. Where do I go when things get hard? What do I do when I can't take it? I come here. I'm getting goosebumps because I'm looking at your faces. You guys ought to see your faces. You've got such concern and such care and such gentleness on your faces that it just, it I've got, I don't know if you get goosebumps on your heart, but that's what it feels like. And, uh, You know, for 19 and a half years now, I've been coming into these rooms, and I've been getting—I've been getting nothing but acceptance from you, nothing but acceptance. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, When I came into OA, I didn't know how to have a feeling. I remember the first time I had a feeling. I remember walking around in my house. And there's a visual with this, so sorry for the people on the tape. But I was walking sort of up and down the hall, tapping my legs along, you know, tapping my hands on my thighs, just sort of like this, walking back and forth, just sort of going, okay. Okay, I don't even remember what the feeling is now, but I remember consciously thinking, okay, this is a feeling. And I looked out the window, and I'll say, the sun's still up. Okay, I can breathe. My God, I'm not going to die. I didn't say my God. I said, I'm not going to die. I learned here how to sit and have a feeling. I didn't know how to be angry. Still have trouble with being angry. I don't. I didn't know how to feel sadness because all I did was eat. And you know, for me, I was the. I was the kind of eater. I was the quantity all day, every day, can't stop eater. I was the. Um, I was. I would eat so much that I would have to unzip my pants, and then I'd have to go put my sweats on or my shorts on or just wear a t-shirt and no pants. I was the eater that would keep going to the kitchen. I lived alone. <laughs> alone. I'd open up the refrigerator looking for it to fix the pain because I just I knew pain or I knew I, just, I, don't, I couldn't put a word on it. I just needed something to take the edge off or to numb me or to dull me and, that's, and I used food for that and recently in my relapse I used food for that and you know what sometimes today in my abstinence I still use food for that. I don't binge. I don't go crazy but I've been known to have an extra bread roll with dinner. I've been known to you know have two big helpings of the Chinese, the, the, the Thai food we had delivered, because one just wasn't enough. I always feel less than when there are people on the podium who say, well, I suffered the most painful, awful, horrific trauma in the history of mankind, but I didn't abstain. I didn't binge. I mean, I didn't, I didn't relapse. I abstained. I didn't use food. I didn't use food. And I hear those people, and I think, God love them. Isn't that great? And then I feel like, you know what, if I'd been a better person, and if I'd worked my program harder, and if I, if, 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 then I would have been able to abstain, too. And, and so I would, I would hit myself with that and give myself a hard time about that. Fortunately, now when that happens, it's just a fleeting feeling. I feel less than, and then it's gone. Because another thing that I've learned is my path is my path. And although all of you share my path with you with me, thank you for that. Nobody's on my path but me. Nobody fucks up the way. Oops. Oh well. Nobody messes up the way I mess up. For me, um, nobody makes the decisions that I make the way I make them. I mean, I'm the one who has to live with my choices, um, and they're not always good ones. Thank you. But I do believe in the steps of this program. I do believe in the tools of this program. For the first time in 19 years, I'm sponsoring three people. And I'm sponsoring one person I hear from occasionally, the other one I hear from even less, and the other one I talk to practically every day concentrated, intense working. I always thought that I couldn't sponsor, that I didn't have, I wasn't willing to give up my time, I wasn't willing to give up myself, I had too many other things to do, and I thought I wasn't going to be a good sponsor. I still don't know if I'm a good sponsor, but now I'm willing to make the sacrifice. Now I'm willing to alter my schedule and put myself out a little bit, because one of the things that I know is when I first came into OA, I had no life. I had nothing. I went to work, and I went home, and I ate, and that was it. It's kind of amazing that I even had a job, but I did was a very poorly paying job, but I had a job. So when I got into OA, I could go to meetings every day. When I first came into OA, they said go to 30 meetings in 30 days. I understand now they say go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and I'm really glad I came in when I did. That's <laughs> a lot. Um, and sometimes I go to six and seven and eight meetings a week. I double up some days because I had nothing else to do. Now I kind of despair sometimes of, Feeling the conscious contact with God like I used to because I can't work the program the way I used to. I now have a slightly more demanding job. I have a partner. I have life and big noise outside. Um, But we won't let it bother us because we can focus. Um, So I can't do it the way I used to do it. So I've been trying to find ways to work the program in a way that fits into my life and I can still have that conscious contact with God and with the fellowship. So one of the things I did, one thing I did that I did back then that I did again now is I'm on the Los Angeles Intergroup Board of Directors. And I, so I go to the board meetings, I go to the delegates meetings. I don't get to go to as many OA meetings. I, I go to two, two a week generally. I try to go to more, but it doesn't usually work. Um, so I, because for me, the, the number one thing, the, the, the number one thing that sucked me in and kept me here was giving service. Because by being a delegate and going to the delegates meeting and getting the information and taking it back to my meeting, by being a meeting secretary or treasurer, by being the inner group, what was I back then, special events coordinator and planned events, I belonged somewhere. I never belonged anywhere. And now... I, 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 I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have been uh, a Region 2 representative, a, a member of the Region Board a couple of times, and I've been coming to Region Conventions for years. So this weekend, I get to see people that I've known for 15, 20, or not 20 years, 15 years. And even though I haven't seen them in a long time, we pick right up as if we just, you know, we haven't seen each other in ages as like we saw each other yesterday. Because it all gets back to me to that identification. There are, what, I don't, I recognize faces here, but a lot of you I haven't seen before, and yet I know every one of you. And I have a connection with every one of you that I don't have out there in the rest of the world. I bet I can come up to any one of you and tell you what's going on inside of me, and you will listen, and you will smile, and you will offer me a hug, and you will reassure me, and you will point me in the direction of the solution. I don't get that at work. I don't get that with my family. I don't get that with my social friends because they don't get it. You guys get it. You understand what it's like to have a conversation with your sponsor about, should I eat a granola bar between, I'm not going to be, I'm having lunch at 12 and I'm not going to have dinner until 7.30 and I'm like, or can I wait that long? Should I have a granola bar? Should I not? What should I do? And I've had that conversation. There was another conversation I had with my sponsor just recently. I can't remember what the food stuff was. But I remember laughing, going, "Oh my God, I can't believe here I am, a grown, intelligent, confident, capable woman arguing out about a sweet potato or whatever it was. I don't even remember. It's really comical when you think about it, you know, to freak out over a loaf of bread. I'm a lot bigger than a loaf of bread, but I, you know, I freak out over crawly things too, and I'm a lot bigger than them. It's just the weirdest thing. But see, you guys, I'm seeing smiles on that. You guys get it. You know what it's like to to, to wig out over, you know." Too much salad dressing or too many cookies or one, you know, whatever it is, whatever the substance is. And I think that's one of the reasons why a special focus meeting, they have women's meetings, there are men's meetings, there are gay and lesbian meetings, there are anorexic meetings, there are bulimic meetings, there are meetings for people who go. We, I think we all have the basic underlying identification with the fact that we're all compulsive overeaters. We all have... Obsessions with food, whether we're compulsive overeaters, bulimic, anorexic, but we also have a second level for us, and that's why we're here. I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful and so fortunate to be part of this path and walking along this path with all of you. I'm grateful you're here, and thank you for making my life so much better.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Our second speaker is Tony from Los Angeles, who will also speak for 25 minutes.
3: Thank you. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tony. I'm a compulsive overeater. And it is so great to be here. And thank you, Violet, and the committee for asking me to share my experience, strength, and hope. I, too, feel it's such an honor um, to be given the opportunity. Uh, Just so that you all know, uh, last Saturday, I celebrated 19 years of abstinence. And um, it's it's truly a gift, thank you. Um, Thank you, God, Um, it's such a gift from God because um, when I came here, I I never thought, never, that I would ever do anything like this for 19 years because this was really uncool. Um, And I I was kind of shocked when um, Violet asked me to speak on this panel because I thought, well, really, why would you ask me to speak on a gay and lesbian panel? I mean, obviously, I have nothing, you know, really to share about that because no one would know by looking at me that I'm gay. Um, I just call her Courtney. So,
4: <laughs>
3: you know, and I came in here with, and, and I'm I'm also going to uh, touch on the identification because, you know, I came in here and um, how I got here even was about um, fortunately, unfortunately, being gay because I called someone to speak to his roommate because I thought, you know, he was like something to see here. And uh, he said, you know, I know your, uh, your mom and she's very well known in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, you know, why don't you come to an OAV? I know you've lost a lot of weight recently. And I thought, oh, please. And he kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And finally, I went because I knew he needed, you know, me to go because he needed me to go, not because I needed to go. And I went. So that's kind of how I got here. And um, I wanted to read. Uh, I thought it was pretty appropriate because when I first saw the topic, I thought what it said was, gays and lesbians shipwrecked all. And I thought terrible thing to say. (laughs) I'm not a shipwreck. and You know, I thought, it's terrible. Then I realized it's a ship maze. I'm like, oh, that's a little different. (laughs) You know, what we read, you know, it's like already. Um, But it says in uh, There's a Solution, we are people who normally would not mix. And if I could, when I read that the first time, I thought, oh, yeah, because if, you know, if they knew about me, about what I had done. Um, and about, you know, my past and, you know, all of those things, you know, they would not want me here. Um, but there exists among us a fellowship of friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. And that's been my experience over the 19 years. No one has looked at me and said, Tony P., the gay compulsory ear from L.A. You know, they, it was Tony P. who, you know, hopefully they feel like I work a strong program and that I have long-term abstinence and, you know, all of those things. And I've tried to be an, set an example um, and so, there, but there was a lot of shame when I came in, and, and because this is a, a special focus meeting, I'll go ahead and talk about it, but believe me that when I first came in, I, I wanted to hide it, um, because there was a lot of shame about it, because, you know, that was, uh you know, almost 20 years ago, and, you know, they didn't have Queers Folk, and we didn't have all these television shows, and it wasn't desensitized as much as it is now, and, you know, there was a lot of there's, there was a, a great deal of shame about it. You know, you couldn't have pictures out on your desk of your partner or whatever. You know, you just people didn't even call them partners, then. You know, it was like oh, your lover or boyfriend. You know, and there's always that little torque to their mouth about it when they said it. So it was it was still different 20 years ago. And um, so I came here, and I remember um, not not knowing that I could really disclose that, and I never would say it at a podium. I would always use you know. Well, this person that I'm seeing, or or they, or, you know, I would never use the gender because I was just too afraid that people would judge me. Um, and so, and I was judging me. Let's face it, you know, I, I was having a big deal. It was a big problem. And, and, you know, it was funny because the first inventory I took, you know, of course it didn't come up because I wasn't going to talk to my sponsor about it either. You know, and, and he was gay, and so he kind of kept asking me questions. I'm like, oh, I really don't want to talk about that. He said, well, you do. Yeah, you do. And we, you know, he really brought it out. Um, When I, I remember telling my my mother. And uh, my mother was like, oh, thank God. And I thought, what do you mean, thank God? She goes, well, I've been waiting for you to tell me this for years. You know, and finally, after all these years, you're comfortable enough, you know, welcome. You know, and and isn't that wonderful? And now you can wear pink. You know. (laughs) And I can plan your wedding. I'm so excited, you know. I mean, she was, like, very, well, she was very she was very well-known in alcoholics and honest, and she spoke at all the gay conventions. She was always asked to speak, and people dressed up like her at Halloween. It was kind of really bizarre. It was, like, really weird. but And they still do it, long nails and the hose, just really weird. But um, so it was a totally different kind of childhood, I'll have to tell you that. Um, and, uh, you know, so I grew up, and she, she was really comfortable with it. So I grew up, and that was, I didn't really um, come out, I guess, Publicly, well, I mean, at least to her, until I was like 18 years old. And I remember it took me like four hours to tell her at this coffee shop. I mean, I think they wanted to close. They're like, "Come on, come on." And she's like, "What are you trying to tell me? You're gay?" I'm like, "Yes, no. How'd you feel?"
4: <laughs> you know,
3: and uh, you know, so that was that was my experience, and that it just it took a long time. And um, and then when I when I started going to meetings, um, I, as I said, I still didn't talk about it. And uh, I, I my first sponsor um, who got me into the program. Um, you know, God's bless him. He really did try to, to desensitize me and that and said, you know, nobody's gonna care, just go ahead and talk about it and I was like, Oh no, 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 no And um, I I said, you know, I and I really looked at it and I don't believe that I ever ate over being gay or anything like that. I I ate over a lot of things as Karen was talking about, but I, I don't really there wasn't a specific time when I was like, Well, I'm eating over because I'm gay. I mean it was fear, depression anger, happiness, joy, whatever, you know, there's all these things to e over, and that was just probably wrapped up into it somewhere, um, but, you know, I remember the, my, my second sponsor that I, I got, um, he, uh, he would, it was a Sunday night meeting, and, and it was in West Hollywood, and he said, well, where, what do you do after the meeting, and I said, oh, I, I go home, and he says, well, there's these clubs, and I, I said, oh, no, I, I couldn't go there, you know, I couldn't go there, and I, I'm just, you know, I'm too embarrassed, and so he would, make me go every Sunday night and I'd have to talk to at least one person before I could leave and that was just mortifying and I, I say that only because those that was my experience um, and and uh, it took me a long time to feel that I could hold my head up high and act like I belonged there and he told me he promised me that there would be one day that I'd be able to walk into these places and not be um, apologetic in my demeanor or my actions for being there and there was and then by the time I, I I left, you know, um, I lived there in that area for probably eight years. And by the time I left, I was so glad to get out of it. I'm like, if I see another homosexual, I'm going to throw up, you know. Um, no no offense to the uh, bulimics. Um, but um, it, I just wanted to get – I mean, that, I had, like, had my fill of it. You know, I mean, I was just saturated with it. But I needed that, you know, and I went to um, – there were some gay and lesbian meetings in, in Hollywood, and there was an old-time center. And, you know, it was like there was some camaraderie there, and it was really great, and I, I really loved that. But then, you know, as I've gotten on in this program, I have to tell you that I, I don't feel that yearning to, to have to be at a gay and lesbian meeting. I I just want to be one among many, and I don't feel the, you know, the necessity to bond with my brothers and sisters. You know, it's all wonderful. It's great. But I, I I feel like I'm a compulsive overeater, and no matter what, I can go to a meeting, and whether they're gay or straight or whatever, we're still going to have that common bond, which is really that we're compulsive overeaters. So um, that was that's totally been a, a different experience for me. Uh, as I said, growing up, um, you know, I ate for a lot of reasons. Um, my parents uh, were very well-known in close-up <coughs> programs, and so they went out speaking, and I was just, you know, it was like my time, you know, because A meetings were like two hours long because they have a break and, and they smoked and all that stuff, and so I just took a long time. So, And their meeting started later, too. It started like 8.30 at night, and then they would go out to dinner afterwards, you know, and, and so I would have like this really long time to eat, you know, and I'd have to wait this obligatory 20 minutes after my parents left because sometimes they would come back. You know, they'd forgotten something, and so I'd been caught many times eating while they had, you know, come back and surprise me. I'm like, throw it under the bed um, as the door's opening. Um, so... Um, and I ate because, you know, basically I grew up kind of like an only child. And so there, they weren't home a lot because they were always doing service. But, I mean, the tradeoff was is that there was so much love in our house because they grew, I, it was a 12-step household. So there wasn't a lot of that issues that, that a lot of compulsive readers grow up with. It was different issues. You know, it was that they weren't around a lot. And, but I went to a lot of AA meetings with my parents. And so I knew all the, you know, the prayers. and I knew what to say. And I knew what to do and all this hold hands. And I, it was, you know kind of cool to go it was like being um the, the son of a movie star um in a way and a lot of ego there you know and so because uh, she was very well known and so um but and I, I kind of saw in a meetings that they didn't care you know gay straight didn't matter either and i thought well that's pretty cool but still i could never tell anybody um and so then of course i told her and then she wanted me to take me to every Gay alcohol non, Al- alcoholics anonymous meeting in, in the city and I was just mortified because I thought she was like you know it's like meat market you know oh, here's my son here <laughs> you know <laughs> single huh? come on um you know so of course that was kind of weird um, but i I truly believe that um, you can recover no matter what you know I did um, on a daily basis I did and and, and that my sponsor and I don't we don't speak a lot about gay issues. There's really not a big, you know, we don't set this time aside every day and talk about being gay, but there are times when it comes up and at least I feel like I can talk to him about it. But I also, I sponsor people who are straight and, you know, it doesn't matter because they can tell me about whatever they want to tell me and, and, and I listen and it, I don't have to, like, change the gender to make it relate and all that other stuff. I mean, I just, I love them to death. I love all the people I sponsor. I sponsor one person that's gay and the rest are straight and, you know, that's, just the way God deals it, you know, and, and they're all just wonderful, and they recover on a daily basis, thank God. Um, and uh, I don't have to fix them or change them or recruit them, <laughs> um, uh, which is, you know, that's what I think a lot of times people thought you know, about gay people, oh, they're going to recruit. Um, like we have this big club that, you know, we have to have so many members, you know. We have to keep our numbers up, so, you know, all you sweet people, we got to, like, convert you. Doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen. Sorry. Um, we're just out to change your clothing and your hairstyles and your furniture. Um, Yeah, that one too. Um, So when I got here, um, as I said, uh, my second sponsor did all that with me and then um, I did my inventory with him and and uh, then I started on my happy road, and, and like Karen, I did a lot of service, a lot of service. I was on the intergroup board three times for four years each, um, and so that's a lot. Um, but I believe that service is really, really what kept me here, um, because there was some sometimes meeting level and um, intergroup level that if I didn't have those service commitments, I wouldn't have stayed. Um, that really saved my butt. And there were when I took um, service commitments at a meeting, it. There were times when that was the only meeting I got to a week, um, and that was dangerous, um, but that's what got me here. Um, I also will tell you, because I need to, you know, be completely honest, is that there was, uh, I think it's 12 or 13 years that I spent on this program with no sponsor. Yes, I can hear the gas. Um, it's, yeah, it's, um, and I'll tell you, that is not, I would never recommend that for anybody, ever. Um, and I think the only reason that I stay here is because God wanted me to be here Um, because there was no reason that I should have been able to do this without a sponsor. Um, But, you know, I was cocky when I first came in because my first sponsor that got me here said, you know, I want you to call me every day. And I said, I have nothing to say to you every day. He said, well, you know, he would, he, I just, I was so willful. I was such a willful child um, that I was, I just fought him on it, and he was going to make me stand up on a table and recite the big book in, in the middle of this restaurant once, and I was like... No, you're not. And um, and and then he released me. I, know, I don't know why, but he released me, and so I found my second sponsor, who's now actually my sponsor again. And um, it was, uh, you know, he was gay, and that and both of them were gay, so it didn't really that wasn't a thing. And and I I actually have had there was a person in the middle of all this that I had a sponsor, and and she wasn't gay, and we were fi- we worked well together. Um, so it didn't matter that, that it just happened to be that that's what God put in my life. So I really don't believe that a gay person has to be a gay sponsor. It just doesn't. I don't believe that. Um, but that's just me, and that's um, how I recover. Um, and so he he worked the he, he worked the steps with me, and he um, told me that I needed to be honest, and I needed to share from the heart, and I needed to help newcomers, and I needed to do service, and you know, instilled all those wonderful things in me that I've grown up with in this program. Um, you know, I came in here when I was uh, um, twenty one years old and I have a nineteen years of absence and you know i'm twenty four now so, um, <laughs> so that's what happens is new math happens in the middle of your recovery and you know age so um, and he really showed me what a loving sponsor could be um, because i didn't know i always thought you know sponsors were to be feared and um Sometimes they are, and, you know, tr- truth be known, you know, Terrell has – my sponsor now is, is not – you know, he does lay down the law, you know, and he is a tough sponsor. But um, I need that because, you know, left to my own devices, I will run you ragged. You know, I will go every way that I can go just not to do what you tell me to do because I'm too busy, I'm too tired, I you don't know what you're talking about, you know, all these things. Um, but getting back to um, identification um, – I cannot say um, that ever that I ate over being gay. I, I just don't remember. I just don't remember doing that. I, I just as I said, I, it was a, it was so many other reasons. Um, oh, i't do remember what I was going to say. Um, so I, I got into this program. Um, you know, my mother's excited about this. you know she she thought this was great. She's setting me up with all these you know dates and all this weird stuff, and which was so bizarre. And um, then, of course, you know, she was also passing judgment on all the people that I wanted to date myself because they weren't good enough or they weren't this enough or that enough and, you know, all of those things. And then um, my first uh, the, my first candle that I took, I remember, you know, she thought it was very funny. I guess not, not a lot of people did, but she brought um, a bag of M&M's because M&M's was my food of choice. And she brought this bag of M&Ms with a no symbol taped on it and gave it to me. And, you know, the whole room, this was like hundreds of people in the room, and the gasp was just, like, louder than anything. I mean, because they just didn't get it. You know, I'm like, how awful could you do But she thought it was really funny. And, and we actually had a laugh about it, but, you know, it it didn't go over that well. Um, but she uh, she always told me um, about being gay. She said, you know, I, I would never judge you for this. Um, I love you. You're my son. Um I, I just hope that um, you find someone someday that you know fills your life and that loves you and that you can love and and that you know it can be a very lonely life. I know this from you know the experience of being out there um, at gay meetings and everything. And that's the experience that she had with all of those with all of her friends. But um, she ne- she always supported me and she never judged me. Um, she and my stepfather unfortunately was not um, the same. Uh, my stepfather wanted me to to be a car mechanic. You can look at me and tell that didn't happen. Um, and I just thought, what is that about? And then it was sports. And I thought, oh, man. You know, I mean, I was the one that, you know, the ball would come. like, here, Tony, catch. And the ball would come. And I'm like, it's coming at 40 miles an hour. It's going to hit me. And I would just, like, move out of the way for it to hit the ground because it was It was fast. Those balls come fast. It can hurt. Not me, you know, because it would probably hit me in the face, and you know, you know, I have to be flawless. So, because I knew it would just hit my nose, and then we, it was just no, not gonna have damage me in some way. So, and um, you know, so he wanted to be, a, to be a car mechanic, and then a you know sports enthusiast, and you know, he would like say, let's watch the game, and I'm like. What game? And, you know, he's like, football. And like, I go, that's the one with the stick and the little ball. And, you know, he just – it just – you know what? It, it just wasn't working. And so when um I told my mother and then he decided – she decided to tell him, she goes, well, we have to tell your stepfather." I said, oh, please, let's not. And she's like, no, we have to do it because, you know, he needs to – you know, she was taking his, his inventory. And, no, he needs to get over this thing about gays. So she told him, and that did not go over well. You know, I mean, I got the lecture – that, you know, to end all lectures. And I remember that's when I decided I could, you know, kind of tune him out. And I could stare at him and look like I was listening, but I was gone. I was, like, thinking about something else and just still stare at him, like I was just checked out. And so I had started doing that a lot. That was when I perfected that game. Um, and then, of course, they would leave and I would eat forever. Um, but so we we did not get along very well about that. Um, he kept thinking that it was a phase that I was going to get over. <laughs> guess not. And my real father, um, he was from, like, you know, he was Minnesota, Norwegian stock, and that just, it just was not an option to even tell him. I mean, that just would have been a nightmare. Now, there are people in this program that will say, oh, you have to tell people, and whatever. That wasn't my experience. You know, my dad and I had a very bizarre relationship. We would, we grew up, and he um, divorced my mother when I was seven, and went off on his life, and he also had a child from another marriage, and gave him up to my uncle, and they adopted him, and so he just being a father figure was just a really odd thing for him. He just didn't really know how to do it, and, and you know, he would shake hands. You know, no hug, shake hands. And, you know, every once in a while I'd give him a big hug, and you could tell it would just stiffen up. It was kind of interesting. I did it at a game. I thought it was funny. Um, sick. Um, and so he would um, – my mother said, are you going to tell him? And I said, oh, no. No, no, no. We have bizarre – you know, we have very little relationship as it is. We'd meet for breakfast when I was probably um, between uh, – I don't know, 20 and 30. We'd meet for breakfast, and it was 20 minutes. 20 minutes, I would clock this. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? How's work? Great. How's where are you are? Right, Fine, great. We'd eat, and we're done. See you in a month. Great. You know, I mean, so, and we never, he would never ask about girlfriends, boyfriends, dating, everything, anything, yeah. He would never, uh, he would never talk about that, and that's that's okay. That was his deal, um, and I, I never felt like I needed to, to broach the subject and he died um, seven years ago and whether he knew or didn't knew, it really didn't matter it just didn't matter I didn't feel like I needed to tell him my half brother is gay and my half brother chose his well, I guess it's my cousin his sister whatever I don't know how to figure that out but his sister's wedding that we were all at to disclose to the entire wedding party that he was gay and and this is my brother and he's and I immediately put my hand over his mouth I don't know what that was about. But anyway, so, bizarre. So that's the family I come from. Um, so just in closing, um, you know, I, I didn't really think I had a lot to talk about on this topic, but I guess I did. Um, you know, it's, it's been an incredible journey in over Years Anonymous. Um, you know, also I realized I believe that, you know, God made me and, um, you know, made me in his image or whatever you want to say. And, you know, he decided that I was going to be gay. You know, I didn't choose it. It wasn't something I chose, Um, and I'm not not ashamed of it anymore. Um, Do I, you know, walk around with the, you know, the gay flag at work? No. You know, I don't believe that that's anybody's business. If they want to know, they can ask me. Um, If I have some, if there are people close to me at work, I tell them. If there are people close to me in my life, I tell them. But I don't make, there's no excuse, I don't make an excuse for it. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, and I think that no one, you know, really cares, really, to tell you the truth. I mean, who I sleep with is my business. And, you know, if you want to know, you can ask me. But um, uh, I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, just I, uh, I want to thank you for asking me and um, keep coming back. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We will now have ten minutes of questions from the Ask It Basket. Okay. I stand here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this one isn't for anyone in particular. Do you feel just as comfortable at regular meetings as gay meetings?
1: Absolutely. I absolutely do. Um, I think I. I my first thought was to say I feel more comfortable at straight meetings than gay meetings, but that's not true. There's a, we have a couple of meetings at the Gay and Lesbian Center in West Hollywood, and I've been asked to speak there a couple of times, which is just lovely and wonderful for me. Um, for me, being a lesbian is not – I am not a lesbian named Karen. I am, a, I, am a, I am a woman. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm a person who participates in life. I'm a lesbian. I'm Jewish. They're part of who I am, but they are not my identity. My identity is a, is, a, you know, is a member of the human race created by God, brought here to be a service to, to God and my fellow human beings.
0: that short? Okay, and this one also for anyone. How long did it take you to feel secure with being? Oh, I'm sorry. It's secure with being a lesbian. I
1: just want to say I just love the softball story because I played softball from the time I was six until I hurt my shoulder
4: <laughs>
1: I just love the sort of interchange with the me and the Tony the other thing I want I know this isn't the question but I was on the intergroup board at the same time Tony was the chair and I was just so lucky to be able to serve with him and I'm very pleased okay and, um, yeah. You know, I first, you know, an abbreviated, abbreviated version of my coming out story was I'd become friends with somebody, a woman in program who was 20 years older than me, and I didn't, I just connected with her, and I started having fantasies about her, which scared the bejesus out of me. Um, and it took me a long time, but I finally told her we were in the car on the way to the Friday night Thalians meeting in Los Angeles, for those of you who remember way back when at the, at the Cedar sinai Thalians place. And I told her that I was having fantasies about her, and she laughed. That was the first time I ever said anything to anybody, um, and that was in March of 1989. That's right, March of 1989. Um, within, within a matter of months, not even months, less than that, I was very comfortable with her, probably within a couple of weeks or so. Um, But being able to be out in the world took a little bit longer. I can't put a time frame on it, certainly less than a year. I remember at my birthday, oh, I was going to say this reading, by the way, was the same month and year of my birthday, the one that we did today. But at my birthday in October of that year, so March to October, by then, everybody knew that I was a lesbian. Everybody at my birthday party, all of my friends, I started coming out to everybody. And so I would just say a matter of months. But I'll tell you, too, that I was in OA for three years before I started coming out to myself. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with it because OA taught me how to live. And I think because I had the tools and I had the fellowship and the love and acceptance already, I had that, that buffer and that boundary. So I, I don't think six months is really a long time, is it? I don't think so. Now I'm just, it's just part of who I am. So I hope that answers the question.
0: Have you had difficulty in working the steps with a straight sponsor?
1: you have a straight sponsor?
3: It's very quick, so
1: I don't... You know what, I've answered so many. No, and if uh, you want to do another question, because? Yeah, I
3: don't... Yeah. I mean, it, it went long enough to... Moving on. Yeah.
1: My Let's answer go. is no.
0: How do you manage your program around love, sex, and relationships in the gay community.
3: Yeah, I'm not really sure what the question is. Is there any way they can expand on that question? I'm not sure what you meant by it. No one wants to own up to it. Um, Or maybe they're gone. Okay.
5: You're,
3: you deal with a lot of negative negative oh okay all right i think okay i think i know so um you're so you're talking about the the kind of stereotypes in the gay community like how do i manage that and not being that like Okay, I'll try to I'll try to see if I can get that. Um, well, body. Let me talk about body image first of all. Um, uh, for this, um, you know, when I came into this program, I had lost a lot of weight, so I was um, probably um, uh, I was I was thin when I got here, um, and so I, I really the body image wasn't an, an issue then, but it was an issue before I got here. But even still, um, you know, if you want to use the stereotypical, uh, sorry for the lesbians in the room but for the gay men in the room the the you know there's a stereotypical kind of you know muscular look or whatever that everybody should be I guess is what they think but I wasn't that I'm never I'm probably never going to be that you know I'm just not going to be you know 5'8 and 5'4 and 3'8 I'm never going to be you know very important the 3'8 is very important you know, I'll tell you I'm never going to be five, you know, eight or nine or whatever. I'm never going to have these, you know, really broad shoulders unless, you know, they find some way to extend them. Um, And I I just, I'm not built that way. I'm built like my father, short, squat, pear-shaped. But, you know, there you go. Um, And and I don't really, the only way I can answer that is that I had to just accept myself on who I was. And I found that there were people that were attracted to me, no matter, men that were attracted to me, no matter what. And they were just, they were attracted to my body type very attractive hello thank you very much so I don't know that's best I can do
4: Sorry.
1: we sort of already did this a little bit but it's how do you handle picking a sponsor if you're gay a lesbian for gays do you sponsor same-sex um, for me, sponsor isn't an issue. Sponsorship is not an issue of sexuality for me personally. For me, when I go to a meeting or meetings and I hear somebody speak who has what I want, and I have a connection, I've asked that person to sponsor me. I've been sponsored by men. I've been sponsored by women. I've been sponsored. Have ever been sponsored by a lesbian? I. Don't know, but there is a woman that I call every morning at 7 o'clock a.m. She's not my sponsor, but we talk every single day. Um, she is a lesbian. Um, I think that, it, you know, if, if, if gay and lesbian is an issue for me, if I have, like, when I was coming out, I was talking, I, 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 I had a straight sponsor, but I was talking about my coming out issues with a lesbian couple who lived downstairs from me because they knew what I was talking about. Just like I, I don't believe that I could successfully sponsor an anorexic because I can't relate. So for me it's about who can I relate to. If somebody asks me to sponsor them and I feel a connection and I feel like I can relate and I've got the availability, I'll say yes. By the same token, uh, what happens to me with sponsors is I go to a meeting and, I, and I'll hear people or even people that I've known for a long time. My current sponsor is somebody I've known for a very long time and I think we've been working together for, I'm going to guess, two or three years. I don't know for sure. Um, but just one day I got this message in my head where God was saying, you should think about asking her to sponsor you. And then I kept getting that message, you know, for a, a couple of days and then a week. And I thought, well, if I'm getting the message this strongly, then that's what I should do. So for me, it's a matter of what is, you know, what's the identification? gets back to that identification. I want somebody to sponsor me, and I want to sponsor somebody who I relate to, who has what I want or if I want with if I have what they want. That's more to me the issue than the gay and lesbian. I think we can sometimes use that as a block. Oh, well, she's straight, so I can't let her sponsor me. Or he's not gay, so he can't sponsor me. I think we can use that as as an excuse. I don't think it's, for me, it hasn't been that critical. It's about, do you have what I want, and are you willing to help me get it?
3: Um, this is a question. I have to make amends to my parents about lying um, that I am a, that I am gay, and lesbian, queer, lesbian. I'm not sure I'm ready to come out to them. And in parentheses, fear. Um, all I can share about that is that. Um, Number one, when I, as I said, when I told my mom, it was very, very difficult for me. I mean, you know, as I said, it took many hours at this coffee shop to do it, and you know, she was like, because she knew, you know, she knew. Parents know. I mean, I don't care what you say; they know. They may not want to know, but they know. Um, and I, there is a lot of fear. Uh, there, there's no way of getting around it. I mean, you're it's very, you're being very vulnerable to to do this, and I applaud you for even thinking about starting this whole process because it's not easy. I will tell you if my father was alive today that I would do it. Um, that I would not have let him die um, not knowing or not at least respecting him enough to give him that information. What he did with this was really, it's none of my business. You know, it was um, that I loved him enough to share that part of my life with him. Um, and so I will say that if you are contemplating, whoever it is is contemplating doing this, that, um, you know, trust that God is going to take care of you. You know that, that this is going to work out. Um, you know, and and just do it. Um, and and it's going It may take a while. You may need to write about it. You may there may be a process that you need to go through. Um, and and it's very 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 scary. I, I mean, I just I kind of get chills just thinking about it because I know it's how scary it is because, um, it it just takes a lot. Um, and as far as the amends, that's that's the other side of it. I mean, you know, if, if you lied about it and you keep your side of the sidewalk clean. Um, and do make the apology for it. Um, you know, really, once you do that part of it, it's it's really up to it's up to them to either receive it or not, and, and really, there's nothing you can do about it. So, I applaud you for for taking this action, and uh, my heart goes with you, um, whatever you decide to do.
0: Okay, um, there's no time for these last two, but perhaps after the meeting, uh, they'll speak with you privately. Um, we now have uh, open sharing. We'll have time for three shares. If you already shared it in another workshop, please give others a chance before you come forward and limit your share to three minutes. Stay on topic and sign the tape release form after you share, You should probably line up.
6: I'm Tom, I'm a compulsive overeater. And Thank you both so much. It was uh, really great. And I'm really challenged, actually, as I've entered this room and heard these people about the relationship between me as a compulsive overeater and my sexual identity as a gay man. And it's really, you know, finding out where the connections are. What I love about our program, which has been said, is that coming to meeting rooms, it's so inclusive that I'm not thrown out, which is one of my biggest fears. I had experiences growing up of being you know, the subject of hate crimes. I mean, I was a queer youth in the 70s before they had the groovy little groups that kids and their parents went to. You know, we just sucked it up and prayed that we didn't get beat up after school. And my response to that was to go to an ice cream store and eat ice cream. So I've I've been really challenged, actually, in terms of, you know, like having a gay or a straight sponsor. And I've got this wonderful sponsor who's a suburban housewife, and I was doing my step four and I I felt really great about it, and I had to, um, I thought I was done, and she said, all right, let's do the sexual inventory. And I was terrified. And given part of my past, and the fact I'm older, I couldn't remember everyone, so I had to create a mathematical formula to figure out how many people I had been with. (laughs) And all I can say is I was really, I I, I knew my sponsor at great capacity, I just didn't know that she understood you know, things like bathhouses and a lot of one-night stands and that type of thing. And I am really grateful for the Gay and Lesbian Fellowship, which was a place I could really feel that stuff and feel understood and seen in a way that I wouldn't be um, mainstream. And in all fairness to her, um, her capacity to accept that and hear that and love me anyhow and really help me to refrain from compulsive overeating really has helped my healing. So I'm Grateful and appreciative of this panel.
2: Hi, I'm Kath Ellen. I'm a compulsive overeater, sugar addict, and lesbian. I'm really grateful that this topic is available because it's important to me, as you said, um, to find a place where I can be welcomed no matter who I am. And I think in the OA meetings, I've been absent for one year. I've been in OA how for one year. And um, in the meetings, uh, everybody gets to come, whether you like them or not. I've been in some business meetings that got a little hairy and, you know, afterwards one lady said to me well you know i get to come i'm coming back and if she wants to come back she can come back or not but you know we get to come and um um actually i didn't come out until 14 years ago i've always been lesbian but i didn't know it and that seems impossible but it's possible given my background very sheltered very religious etc etc so i'm pretty new being out and when I came out, I came out with a bang, and I came out um, because, well, I came out quietly to a few people at my church, but since I was the president and they kicked me out, I was on the front page of the paper for a week because the whole thing was going on, and so I suffered a lot of pain from my church, et cetera, and the people who supported me, well, I didn't even tell my family because I had come out to them unsuccessfully, and so they didn't know that our family church was kicking me out, I think. Anyhow, my mom didn't disown me my sister did. And um, um, my whole family now consists of mom and two sisters who none of them are comfortable that I'm lesbian. My sister said to me before I left for this trip, well, don't rule out men. I didn't have time to make program calls to people that I know about that one. So it's really uncomfortable for me that they don't get it. And when I came to OA, my sister who does love me, this one sister does love me, and she said, don't tell anybody you're lesbian. Let them get to know you first. And after they know you, I said, how long? She said, well, you know, give it some time. Not being willing to wait on her time schedule. There's always this hard question as a lesbian, like, Am I going to know this person over a period of time? Because after a while, it's going to be embarrassing when they say, well, why didn't you tell me? If you pass that point where they say, well, why didn't you tell me? I mean, where is that point? So my one of my home meetings, I just thought, you know, I can't take this any longer. And there were some Christian ladies in the room who are real Christian. We meet on Sunday morning before church, and they dress all up for church and everything. And they are real Christian. And... And their um, way of talking about Jesus and the Lord and all this stuff, you know, is their way. And they have the right. And I'm not going to be out because of that. I mean, they have the right. But I thought, shoot, if I have to take their stuff, I'm going to let them know who I am so they can take my stuff, too, and it'll be even. So I said, you know, um, God, as we understood her, et cetera, when I was reading the readings, and God and she and women and changed the words to... More of our fellows turned into all of us and so on. And so um, as it turned out, I'm going to wind up now. Um, during a business meeting, one lady did leave forever because I'm lesbian. But mostly we get along, and it's okay. And I'm really grateful that in these rooms you can come, and I can't keep you out, and I can come, and you can't keep me out. So it's a safe harbor, and that means a lot to me. Thank you.
5: My name is Kevin, compulsive eater. Hi, Kevin. Hi. Um, you know, being a gay male and, and dealing with that has been, uh, for the most part, also growing up in the 70s, my deepest, darkest secret. In my high school, they tried to hang one of the uh, gay guys from the high school bleachers. Um, and in my era, it was a dangerous place growing up in the Midwest being gay. Um, I came, moved out to California, um, and it was almost suspect if you're going to school in California. It's just mostly fruits and nuts up there. And then, uh, so I did my coming out, but it was really very much a part of me eating compulsively, dealing with my sexuality, being a survivor of um, covert incest, being the mama's boy that I was, being so horribly close to mom. And... Uh, having to wrestle with any sexual feelings whatsoever. That's when they really packed on the weight. And, you know, when Terrell was saying during the opening night that we eat around our sexuality, I absolutely think that is true. Um, Now, not having had any role models or the entitlement that society gives heterosexual people by example um, to know how to date and how to tell someone that you like them or attracted to them and to hold hands and go steady and go to the movies and have peer groups of friends to process attraction and and joining. Um, I never had any of that. I think that in gay society, it's all been so illegitimate that we were forced underground. And I took that and made it addictive. So also, you know, having been a victim of gay bashing, having been a victim of sexual abuse, I struggle with my sexuality as a gay man on how to be appropriate and how to set boundaries. And uh, now, having recently uh, transformed my physical body and and having some level of attraction, don't know what to do. Don't really know how to have a boyfriend and say no or um, feeling like I, I need to give my partner's sex in order to be um, worthwhile and even when I might not want to. There's so many things that, I, that there's no manual for, you know. But I still am, um, you know, I have this program and I have a place to come. I wish I felt as easy sharing in a regular OA meeting uh, about these issues as I would amongst gay people. But I go to Gay AA and talk about that. I find other gay people. But um, I think that um, in the long run, you know, the, the 12 steps are universal. And the fact that they include gay people as well as Jewish people and black people and red people and all of us, that, you know, that you can't throw us out. And I, that makes me feel great. Thank you.
0: It's now time to close this workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence silence, followed by the serenity prayer.